This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I believe this is show something like 990, meaning we are closing in on 1,000 programs over a 20-plus year period. We would have to note that it's not necessarily always easy to come up with an hour's worth of stuff that is informative and entertaining, which is what our, our goal is every week. Unfortunately, Radio Products has a very small staff of two. Well, over the years, we've had, we have had various assistants. We had an intern once. Anyway, our goals are to come up with interesting things without necessarily being a current events show, but it's so easy to talk about things that are in the news. God knows that that uh, we we do that pretty much. I would say every program. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we were trying to reach out to our good friend Howard McKinney, Doctor Howard McKinney, and he's agreed to join us on today's program. And he has referred me to an article that he took part in a couple of decades ago. The title of the article was "How Not to Commit Suicide." And you can bet that uh, Dr. McKinney will have something interesting to say about that, because he always does. So we will hit that in our second segment today. In the meantime, as we start today's program, I'd like to go over some things we have mentioned in the past. Starting with, and I just can't resist this one, expiration dates. It's a topic we hit, I don't know, a year or two ago. We noted that you're not always getting useful information when it comes to things like expiration dates. And, and this certainly was reiterated when I purchased some baking soda a few days ago. And I noted on the top of the box that it has an expiration date. I'm not sure why it's there. Maybe there's some legal requirement that you have to have an expiration date. According to uh, the box, my sodium bicarbonate expires in December of 2025. Yes, Mr. Well, maybe that's when the box falls apart. I don't think so. I, I am pretty sure that if you put your sodium bicarb on the supermarket shelf and came back a million years later, it would still be just as good. But would it be in a box? Now, the box I can't speak for. And as follow-up on a recent discussion we had about a good friend of mine who was telling me some, what I thought, hair-raising tales about things they seen on television and we're taking at face value. To that end, let me quote Bertrand Russell. I stumbled upon this one a few days ago. Bertrand Russell once said, people's opinions are mainly designed to make them feel comfortable. Truth, for most people, is a secondary consideration. Sadly, we suspect that is true, but, but we're pretty sure that doesn't necessarily reflect upon anyone listening to this program. And I do feel the need to do a little bit of follow-up on our talk uh, about Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter's book, An Hour Before Daylight, which I read recently and enjoyed very much. I think most people are very complimentary of the former president in his old age, and I think that he deserves a great deal of praise. There's no doubt Jimmy Carter deserves a great deal of praise for the things he has done since he was president. But after watching the documentary All In, featuring Stacey Abrams and focusing in on Georgia, it occurred to me that former Georgia governor and former president Jimmy Carter decided to stay out of that one and did not come forward to talk about voter suppression in his home state. 
And I wondered why. Because the efforts to stop the voter suppression, which is, which is key to what has been happening in Florida, is something Jimmy Carter, I think, could have and should have said something about. This documentary, All In, was completed, I think, in 2022, certainly before the most recent election. And there was a great deal of optimism in it that they would get people out to vote and they would reverse these efforts to disenfranchise uh, primarily black voters in the state. But alas, it seems pretty clear in retrospect that this did not take place, that the efforts by Republicans to keep black folks away from the polls was successful. And that explains right then and there how it was Stacey Abrams lost again to Brian Kemp. Greg Pallas has pointed out for us on more than one occasion that down in Georgia they have disenfranchised hundreds of thousands of people. And to make a long story short, they weren't disenfranchising white people. Anyway, I don't know why it is that the, uh, the former governor and former president didn't speak up on this topic. All I can say is that I, I wish that he had. And if folks down in Plains, Georgia happen to be listening, well, maybe it's not too late to get him on record on this very topic. And we made passing mention a couple weeks back about this uh, Chinese balloon, (laughs) brouhaha. And in reference to that, I had to laugh at a cartoon I saw, which showed a pilot in a jet flying high above the earth with a voice ball above it saying, are we shooting down all spying devices or just the Chinese ones? And floating in balloons next to him are a balloon labeled Facebook, one labeled TikTok, one labeled Amazon, one labeled Instagram, one labeled Twitter, and one labeled Google. And yes, as we keep harping on this program uh, about, all of these big tech corporations are selling you and me to advertisers. We are the product. And yes, they're doing it through spying, and they don't want to call it that, but That's really what it is. Rest assured, we'll have more to say about that. And you know what? There's no sense waiting. Let me go right to a Los Angeles Times article on this subject. The headline of the article in the LA Times by Noah Bierman, staff writer, is Next Step in Surveillance, AI Finding Out Who Your Friends Are. And yes, that does appear to be the next step that AI uh, is going to take. Well, it's taking many steps at once, but this is one that we should be paying some attention to. Noted Bierman, surveillance technology has long been able to identify you. Now, with the help from artificial intelligence, is trying to figure out who your friends are. With a few clicks, this co-appearance or correlation analysis software can find anyone who has appeared on surveillance frames within a few minutes of a hypothetical person over the past month, strip out those who may have been near him or her at the time, and zero in on another man who has appeared 14 times. The software can instantly mark potential interactions with the two men, now deemed likely associates on a searchable calendar. When you know it, a San Jose-based company, Vintra, showed off this technology in an industry video presentation last year. It sells the co-appearance features as part of an array of video analysis tools. The firm boasts on its website about relationships with the San Francisco 49ers and Florida Police Department but apparently not the Chinese government, which the piece notes, well, although co-appearance technologies is already used by authoritarian regimes such as China, Vintra seems to be the first company marketing it in the West, according to industry specialists. Isn't this a nice thing? 
It does crack me up in Silicon Valley how, as they bring these monstrous technologies online, it's always promoted, you know, in, in such a sunny, friendly way that you think, boy, that's that sounds great. Maybe this tech will keep me from forgetting someone that I should have sent a Christmas card to. I mean, do we all have to start wearing hats and sunglasses so that we're not recognized by, by cameras, which are now ubiquitous? I did have to laugh. One of these um, services that connects up neighbors, which unfortunately I made the mistake of joining, had a lamentation on it uh, today about someone that had gotten robbed, and they felt very bad about it because, you know, nobody wants to be burglarized. They were really sorrowful over the fact that they had not taken the time to buy cameras. If they'd had cameras, they thought maybe the crime would have been solved. To which one clear-headed person responded, No, don't feel bad about this. All the crook has to do is wear a mask. Which I think, sadly, is all too true. In other tech-related news, we have the following. This comes from The Week magazine, a reprint from Nicole Nguyen's piece in The Wall Street Journal which said, back when we had CD players and VCRs, we could use them until they broke down. But that's not true of smart devices that depend on software updates to function. In January, customers were outraged when security camera maker Arlo notified them it was pulling support for some models and would end the free video storage that had been a well-advertised selling point. One user called it false advertising. Arlo reverse course, but the kerfuffle highlights the trade-off that connected devices pose. Even though a smart gadget might be working just fine, its maker can decide to pull the plug and make you buy a new one. The more advanced the device, the more dependent its lifespan is on the companies behind it. And yes, this correspondent has, um, has, has asked on many occasions why it is we need to get new cell phones every year, why we need to have 5G, why we have to have faster and faster service, where we have to have more and more apps. Is this really necessary for all of us to make our lives better? I think that's one valid question. Another is, how is it that these tech giants are allowed to continue to make billions of dollars by putting people out of work? After all, they are providing technology that allows companies to fire people and replace them with the tech that the providers are selling to them. And I have a personal story that represents a convergence of, of these two threads. I dropped my phone a couple weeks ago. It cracked the screen. And I did have insurance on it. In the old days, you'd drive to a shop, produce evidence of the insurance, and get it fixed. That's not how it works these days. I called up the insuring company, and after 45 minutes, finally reached a human who was able to schedule a fix-it appointment. Now, it turned out they couldn't actually send me to a shop. More on that in a moment. But they would send someone out to my house, which they did. Now, keep in mind, it took six days for this to transpire. In the meantime, I called up other companies to say, can you just replace the glass? They said, yes. How much? 160 Well, thanks to having insurance, this only was going to cost me $30. I figured, ah, I can wait six days to save $130. So, the guy shows up on time, takes my phone, goes out to the truck, comes back in, hands me the phone back, and man, it looks beautiful. The glass is clear, and I think I'm back in business. Except that after he drives away, and I go to use the phone, I discover that the earpiece no longer works. I can't hear anybody. To use my phone, I now have to use the speakerphone. Furthermore, the button on the phone that you push that answers the call ceased working. 
Both of these things worked fine before the glass got replaced, telling me it's pretty clear that the action of replacing the glass caused some damage, which rendered these things inoperative. So I called the company back. Oh, well, it was too late. They, they couldn't send the tech out. He was long gone. And doggone it, it looks like the next time they can schedule a visit would be in six days. And when I suggested I'd be happy to take the thing in if it would facilitate matters, they ran through the four closest fix-it shops to me, and it turned out that, wouldn't you know it, none of them were doing repairs. I discovered a little bit later that the reason for this was that all of these shops had switched over to only doing iPhones, which I do not have. So after spending 45 minutes again to reach a human being and talk about this, the helpful tech on the phone suggested they try to do some remote changes to my phone to see if that would get it working. Oh, and by the way, I had to hang up and call back on another phone. I was pessimistic that this was going to work, but when I went through the motions and called back on a different phone, they contacted my phone, they did the rigmarole they were going to do, nothing changed. I said to the guy, it seems to me that what happened was something broke while the glass was being changed, and someone should be able to come back out, find where the, the, this misconnection is, and repair it. To which he said, yeah, yeah we, we'll have to wait six days, though, to send somebody out and help send somebody to your house again. Uh-huh. He did have one possible suggestion, though. Just send your phone in, and we'll mail you a new one. That is covered under warranty. To me, now, to me, this seemed rather sinfully wasteful because in my own mind, I imagine that it may be a piece that was, you know, only cost five bucks that would fix everything. Nevertheless, I scheduled an appointment six days in the future. In the meantime, found a local shop not associated with this uh, insurance company and called them up to explain the situation. The tech in this small firm told me, oh, what probably happened was when they took the glass off, they broke the connection to the earpiece and, you know, it needs to be replaced. He said, sounds reasonable to me. So I told the guy, they're going to come out and take a look at this. If I don't get satisfaction, I'm coming to you. So on schedule, the guy showed up, took my phone out to the truck, took a look at it and came back and said, well, it looks as though the earpiece is not connecting to the software. To which I suggested, meaning there's a broken connection there somewhere, right? He stared back at me like a deer in the headlights, saying like, yeah, yeah, that's logical. But he said, you know, maybe, maybe the motherboard has been disconnected. I said, I don't think so. I think it's something simple. He said, well, I can't fix it, but you can take it in. I said, I already tried that. None of the local people are seeing customers. He said, yeah, yeah, they're just doing iPhones now. But he says, I'll tell you what, as he hands me a card, I know these two stores can service you. One of them was 45 miles away, and the other was 50 miles away. Now, given that time is money, I decided to call the guy whose shop was just five miles away. And to make this very long story shorter... I would simply note that I took it in. They took the back off. The guy points out to me where the broken piece is. Said, we can order another one. You'll have it in a couple days. How much, I said. A dollar, he said. So I ordered two. Now, does it strike you, dear listener, as insane that a company is willing to send me a new phone worth hundreds of dollars rather than deal with a fix that really was a $1 item? Doesn't seem like a good business model, but that's the world we're living in. Just replace it. And if you try to get it fixed, oh my God, the hoops you're going to have to jump through. There's a big movement now to have a right to repair of things when they break. 
And, you know, I think it's high time for this. It seems to me that fix-it shops everywhere are just going away. If it breaks, you just get a new one. Now, in the case of a phone, imagine the technology, the, the cobalt that's got to be dug out of the Congo, the rare earth elements that have to be purchased from China, all of the high-tech stuff that has to go into a modern cell phone. That's quite an impact on the environment. I think we should do less of it. And I've already said too much, so I'm going to quit. Mr. Miller points out that when you stop the service on your phone, that it can sometimes be sold to other people, reused and recycled. I don't know. Need to look into that. This might be an excellent time to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week this past week, and I'd have to agree with this one, for baseball fans after a new pitch clock designed to reduce dilly-dallying by pitchers and hitters cut the average time of spring training games to 2 hours and 36 minutes, nearly a half hour shorter than last season's average. Mr. McMillan? Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some pizza and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me We suspect this will only improve the national pastime. It was a bad week last week for Volkswagen, which had to apologize to the Illinois police for refusing to help them find a stolen SUV with an abducted two-year-old inside because the car's GPS subscription had expired. Turns out by the time police paid the $150 to reactivate the service, the child had been safely recovered. And it was an ugly week this past week for cosmologists with the news that the James Webb Space Telescope, which was designed to peer back in time to the furthest reaches of the universe and the origins of the universe, have found a group of galaxies whose existence could change everything. They've been dubbed universe breakers because of their impact on established theories. These six large galaxies observed were fully formed between just 500 million and 700 million years after the Big Bang, which is far too soon for such large star clusters to have formed, at least according to current theories. CNN.com quoted co-author Joel Leha from Penn State University is saying, we expected only to find tiny, young, baby galaxies at this point in time. We've discovered galaxies as mature as our own. Adding, we found something so unexpected, it actually creates problems for science. No, no, Mr. Leha, or is it Dr. Leha? It doesn't create problems for science. It creates problems for your current theory. You should realize there's a big difference between the two. You know, I was just reading a book that made mention of Piltdown Man, one of the most notorious hoaxes in the history of science. And no, we're not going to take much time to go into that today, but suffice it to say that when they found the Piltdown Man, or more correctly, somebody phonied up the Piltdown Man, scientists for years had problems putting together it with the other fossils that were out there. 
when finally someone came along and said, that's a data outlier, we're throwing it out, and took a look at human evolution, all of a sudden it started to make sense. You know, good science is supposed to handle such problems and keep moving on. And it, it usually does. I'm sure someone will be able to come up with an explanation eventually for these adolescent galaxies they thought were baby galaxies. We think that somewhere down the line, someone's going to come up with an explanation for why it is these, you know, adult galaxies exist when we expected only to find baby galaxies. You know, I had another article I can't put my hands on at the moment right now talking about how scientists are taking the data from astronomical observations and converting it into sound because that produced some interesting results. Maybe they should try that with these old galaxies. We assume they will not sound like the following. And this allows me to circle back into something that shows the New York Times occasionally is able to catch up with radio parallax. We predicted on this show a long time ago that there would be problems with all of these satellites, these communication satellites launched by the thousands or perhaps tens of thousands on Earth-based astronomy. This was and is completely predictable. In the piece in the New York Times by Shannon Hall, it is noted that the Hubble Space Telescope, known for recording awe-inspiring images of the cosmos while advancing the field of astronomy, is now under threat. Private companies are launching thousands of satellites that are photobombing the telescope, producing long, bright streaks and curves of light that can be impossible to remove. And the problem is getting worse. A study published last week in the journal Nature Astronomy reveals an increase in the percentage of images recorded by the Hubble that are spoiled by passing satellites. And this data went only through the year 2021. Thousands more satellites have been launched since then by SpaceX and other companies, and many more expected to go into orbit in the years ahead, affecting the Hubble and potentially other telescopes in space, not to mention on Earth. Later in the piece, it's noted that in May of 2019, SpaceX launched its first batch of Starlink satellites designed to broadcast internet signals across the globe. Soon after, an outcry emerged among astronomers who were concerned that Starlink's streaks could jeopardize a number of campaigns to observe the universe from telescopes on Earth. In response, Elon Musk suggested that astronomers bypass the issue by moving telescopes to orbit. But Hubble which lives in low Earth orbit, roughly 335 miles above the Earth's surface, actually resides less than 10 miles below most Starlink satellites, which means that the observatory and other orbital space telescopes are still facing interference from satellite constellations. Not only do you need to put your telescopes in space, but you have to put them above all the other traffic, noted an astronomer. Near the end of the piece, it notes that a spokesperson for SpaceX declined to comment on this new study, but pointed toward the company's past efforts to mitigate the efforts of Starlink. The company has tried a variety of methods to darken the satellites, including a mirror film designed to direct light away from the ground. But Meg Schwamm, a planetary scientist at Queen's University in Belfast, who was not involved in the study, worries that the light will be directed up instead, and could potentially worsen the situation for space-based telescopes. I don't know, this stinks. I was in the backyard not too long ago, and I looked up and saw something as bright as Venus. I thought, that's odd. And it was odd. In a matter of seconds, it went away. There was a lot of talk years ago about the Iridium satellites orbiting the Earth and how that they would occasionally focus light back down on 
two observers on Earth causing a flare, an iridium flare, and maybe that's what I saw. I don't know. As someone who enjoys the night sky and considers it a heritage of all humanity, I don't think private companies should be allowed to do this. We need to think about this technology. Actually, there's a lot of technologies we need to be thinking about. One I've been thinking about my entire life is the fact that we keep putting asphalt and concrete everywhere. And yeah, when it comes to developing an urban area, that pretty much comes with the territory. But we need to consider some mitigations. As we speak, there is talk of another atmospheric river bearing down on California. There's a lot of talk about how this could help recharge our aquifers, fill up our reservoirs, and eliminate the problems, or many of the problems we've had with drought out here in the western states. I'd like to cite an opinion piece in MSNBC by Hayes Brown, noting that California has a concrete shell that is making its flooding worse and inhibiting its ability to recharge our aquifers. To quote from the piece, Over the last century, the world has been increasingly covered with impenetrable pavements, asphalt, tarmac, and concrete to handle the rise in motor traffic. As of 2004, the total area of paved surface in the U.S. alone covered an area nearly the size of Ohio, a figure that has surely only increased since then. This growing shell over the planet is both contributing to climate change and exacerbating its effects, as we're seeing now in California. At this point, the problem isn't a lack of science about the matter. It's decades of poor planning. The Center for Watershed Protection has said that as much as 65% of the total impervious cover in the landscape can be classified as habitat for cars, which includes roads, parking lots, driveways, and garages. Meanwhile, a group of researchers in 2020 estimated that for every percentage point increase in roads, parking lots, and other impervious surfaces that prevent water from flowing into the ground, annual floods increased by an average of 3.3%. A 2013 study showed that Los Angeles was 61% covered with impervious surfaces at the time. San Francisco was 54% paved over. Notes the piece, even before the record precipitation in California, we already knew what happens when development overtakes the planet's ability to absorb the brunt of extreme weather. When Hurricane Harvey struck Houston in 2017, the floodwaters from the storm killed dozens and displaced tens of thousands of people. Harvey was the perfect kind of storm to devastate the country's fourth largest city. Massive and slow-moving, dumping 60 inches of rain over four days and an example of the storms to come as climate change accelerates. Houston's metro area is famous for its sprawl, only Atlanta boasting a lower population density. The rush of construction that's facilitated the paving of Houston has meant spreading out into the floodplains, prairie, rice fields, and wetlands that once soaked up rainfall. It's a problem that officials in Houston have been aware of for decades, but had only barely acknowledged before Hurricane Harvey. Richard Hyde, a retired petroleum geologist, told NPR in 2017, they did not build a third reservoir which was so badly needed. They built houses. Houses get tax money. Reservoirs don't. Now, some years back on this program, we we had a discussion on permeable surfaces. Yours truly spotted some uh, masonry down in Costa Rica, which would allow people to park their cars on it just fine, but allowed water to pass through it back into the ground. You know, we could do a lot more of that sort of thing, and frankly, we need to do a lot more of that sort of thing. 
But we're out of time, I think, uh, for this segment. So let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around for Howard McKinney.